This is Monocle on Design, a show where we explore everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, we're looking at hospitality spaces, specifically hotels, restaurants and dining halls. We'll hear from interior designer Tara Bernard, pay a visit to a grand communal space at the University of Cambridge and speak to Tom Dixon, a designer that creates furniture and food spaces too. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. Tara Bernard established her namesake design studio 20 years ago. Over the ensuing decades, the British interior designer has become known for creating outstanding hospitality spaces across the globe, from the Hari in Hong Kong to London's Kimpton and the newly completed Four Seasons in Fort Lauderdale. Each hotel, while carrying the hallmarks of a Tara Bernard and Partners project, is imbued with a strong sense of place and individuality. To find out more about her work and how she stayed a leading light in interior design for years, I sat down with Bernard in our studio. I suppose the big difference is that you are starting from the very beginning. And even though in the interior design and the textures and the fabrics, what's on the walls, the floors, the furniture we sit in, that is so, so key. It's almost osmosis into how you feel once you're in that room. It's really important to us how that space flows. So that's why we like to put the two together. When I think of your work, I'm thinking of your hospitality spaces and your hotels. Tell us a little bit about, I guess, your approach um, to every Every that. single project, every single hotel is approached individually. So there is, in a sense, a new story for each one. And I think even though it's the more practical, we have certain design philosophies or go-tos that over the last decades have certainly matured, but they would always start with black and white, maybe less sexy floor plans so that we know how we're going to move around the space and we've dedicated each zone. And from there, we will also simultaneously work on what we call creating a DNA, which is a personality from that project, which might be drawing on local artisans, things that have inspired us nearby, but also it could be people. It could be a picture of a woman in a linen dress that just makes us think of a project in Mexico. And we take all those inspirations and they slowly together help us form a story. And from that story, it will lead us to the choice of finishes, the floorings, the furniture, so that everything has a sense of coming from somewhere. Not themed, but there is a personality behind every project. So obviously each one, I guess, is distinct in its own right, but are there maybe rules or an approach that's consistent across, you know, your work each time? Are you speaking to locals? Are you digging into, you know, history books? How do you even begin to, I guess, develop the DNA? You mean for the look and feel. So yes, there's the deliverables. We'll have everyone switching off this podcast because there's very practical logistic deliverables, which layouts have to be signed off before you can go into the elevations. And those all are run simultaneously to the look and the feel. A project in Mexico on the beach is obviously going to differ massively from what we might be building in downtown Osaka. So therefore, there is a real need to know the area. We often refer to what we do as indigenous, but we also like to keep things timeless. I believe very much with any hotel, there is such a magic to a hotel, such a sense of ceremony, and it's all tied into the operations. But for us, it's really important to draw on what's local, to create something that doesn't feel inappropriate to where it sits but still feels seductive and key to that is making sure you don't end up doing something that's themed and this is what i want to talk about 
How do you steer clear of that? How do you tread that fine line between reflecting a, a place's character without maybe turning that place into a caricature, if that makes sense? Yeah, it's a really good question because, and especially I think today, we feel there is very true to our work, but I also believe what people want very much is to feel a sense that that place belongs as to a generic hotel brand that you would know from Hong Kong to Istanbul. You want to feel that it fits in with your surroundings. And I suppose there's a sense of approaching it a little like one's home, that you would draw on local crafts. You would use a floor that maybe the stone is local, but it doesn't mean that everything else has to be. And if I was creating my own home, I might throw in a mid-century chair that has nothing to do with the Mexican beach, but the fabric on the cushion might be from the local crafts. And I think that makes all the difference because what you're doing is it's sort of salt and peppering with character pieces, finishes that might not necessarily have to be there. And in a sense, I don't have rules, so you're breaking rules. Is there a particular project that stands out for you in terms of, you know, feeling timeless that you've maybe gone back and revisited 10 years later and it, and it still hits? And, and maybe is there something from one of those projects that, you know, you think is worth celebrating or, or talking about or something other designers can learn from? I would almost say invite me back in 10 years when we're 30 and let me see what I feel about some of these projects. Interestingly enough, I was having a drink with someone yesterday in a hotel in London, which was finished over 10 years ago the Harry Hotel in London. There will always be when places are that busy. I want to go back and tweak some fabrics or upholster things, but on the whole, it still works. And that's really reassuring to know. It is right for the clientele and for the attitude, if you like, of that hotel group. And I really hope that some of the choices, as if you were doing a home, no one really builds a home to necessarily have to upgrade it or change it. So there's certain practical decisions that have to be made with hotels in terms of which fabrics and things like rub tests and fire, etc. So once you get through those, the feeling of what the materials and how you situate it bring, we hope inevitably do pass that ultimate test of standing the test of time. You've talked a bit there about, you know, homes and you've mentioned that throughout this discussion when we are talking about hospitality spaces. Does your approach differ when you are designing a home or a residential space or are these values that you've sort of talked about consistent throughout all the spaces that you design? I suppose for me there is a crossover and essentially when you're starting a hotel project, not all, but, you know, when I started many years ago, there was, for me, a movement to move away from that mausoleum can't touch it, feel. And how could we create something that was ultimately keeping it chic, but maybe a more approachable luxury, something that felt more real, but still to create spaces that could be seductive, yet approachable. And therefore, when I sometimes think of going into a hotel and we have a lobby, increasingly we see the lobbies as sort of like a salon lounge lobby, could it be the most marvellous living room? on steroids. It's just that much bigger. So rather than saying, I've got X amount of sofas and seats and this whole place is going to be filled with waiters and food and beverage, I do look at it as pockets of how would I want to sit? Where do I want to, you know, not necessarily curl up, but sit down with my coffee and read my papers or equally by night dim and have my martini. So therefore, really trying to individualise each area within all those little sofa settings. And so therefore, there is an element of It is your very elegant drawing room in a home times 10. So yes, I suppose I do react to spaces in a very personalised way. 
you talked then about revisiting projects in, in 10 years' time. I want to, I guess, ask a more open-ended question mm. to finish. I mean, what are your hopes for your practice over the next 10 years, but also, I guess, for interior architecture over the next 10 years? What directions do you want to see the industry moving in? Gosh, well, two great questions wrapped up in one, so you snuck like that by that. me. Yeah, I caught that. I think, for me, I would like to... Well, the last few years, I promise, if I sat down and said, what's my strategy, where do I want to go, I just really hope we'd survive. And having come out of something with the most incredible team, it is a journey that I just want to stay on and that we can keep improving, but I can keep encouraging and growing the incredible team I work with for them to take more and more ownership there. We will start this year looking, because there's so much furniture that we actually build ourselves, and maybe looking at doing some capsule collections of our kind of favourite pieces. And we're looking at doing something all based around the dream hotel suite. So it could be in someone's bedroom or it could be someone's living room, but we're going to do a little capsule collection for that. It's super exciting. But um, beyond that, where do I see hotels going and futurizing and design and build? I'm always checking myself. I always think I can know something better. Every trip I take, my eyes are alerted to something. So I think it's to always be open and keep, keep that in mind. And it's really interesting because in some ways... We want to evolve where it's going, but when you say about looking back, I can go to some of the great dames of hotels, which obviously might have a refurbishment, but they're still the go-tos. So Claridge's is still a great example that it still does all the things that in many ways we're doing today. And if you look at luxury, I think what's going to be key is spaces and how we handle spaces. I think unless we're building a super cool pod-like hotel, And if we're looking at luxury designs, we need to put an emphasis on sometimes slightly larger bedrooms, the bathrooms. But I think overall, probably wellness, health. I think that's really key. I don't have a project now where the gym isn't a spa. And there is such an importance to how we live that I would say that it'd be great to say that, you know, they're going to have some strange kind of reception and walk in. But at the end of the day, we go to hotels because people like people. So we still want to check in. We will have some more electronic devices, of course. And we'll have people like me that, you know, wants to meet someone when I go in. And then we'll still need places to eat. We still want food and beverages. We'll still want a bar. So I'd say the emphasis certainly, you know, for me immediately, I would say health and wellness will come into it. We head to the University of Cambridge now to see how one of the academic institution's famed communal dining spaces has been reimagined. Homerton College's new dining hall by Field and Fowles is inspired by the arts and craft movement and employs a number of unique techniques, notably the use of faience, a traditional form of handcrafted glazed ceramic tile originating in Italy. For more on this departure from the Hogwarts-esque imagery many have come to associate with the university, here's Monocle's Maylee Evans. I'm at Homerton College at the University of Cambridge, where students and staff alike are settling into the newest addition to campus. A light, airy and open dining hall with a striking ceramic tile butterfly roof that soars skyward. The elegance and ambition of the design from architectural firm Field and Fowles reflects the importance of the dining hall to college life in providing an organic space where many convene. Here's Professor Geoffrey Ward, 
He was principal of the college until 2021 and was heavily involved in ushering in the new dining hall at Homerton. The college doesn't have a chapel because of its dissenting origins. So that's one traditional meeting point that the college doesn't have. And in these circumstances, the the dining hall, as I say, has, has got to be more than a dining hall. It's got to be a hub. And it's got to be the the students' home from home. The dining hall's got to be there for those grand occasions, the formal halls, there's the candlelight, people are wearing gowns, they've doled up to the nines. But it's also got to do the non-grand. It's got to cater for a huge student population who can be hungry at just about any time of day or night. And so it's got to be very formal indeed, and it's got to be very um, immediately informal and turn on a dime to get from one to the next. But that versatility doesn't make it vague. It actually makes it probably the hub of the college. Because where else does potentially everyone in college come together or be there at some point during the day? This flexibility required within the space was one of the project's bigger challenges. As architect Edmund Fowles explains, some clever additions allow the space to oscillate between informal gatherings in a warm, friendly and inviting space during the day to a more dramatic setting during formal dinners or ceremonies in the evening. They're able to shut down all the shutters and there's darker panelling at the ground floor of the hall. Um, and when it's all kind of candle lit, it, it takes on this very different persona. When the light stops sort of percolating down from the clear story, it's the lower part of the truss that's illuminated and it creates this much more intimate space, which is very introverted, which is sort of nice because it focuses attention on, on kind of conversation and, in the dining hall. But we were always playing that game between kind of formality and informality of the building and the openness of the hall at ground floor level in the daytime is, is one of its, its real assets because you walk into the hall and you're met with this lovely view out towards a very ancient meadow and uh, some mature trees to the south. We've kind of carved out little courtyards, one on the east and one on the west of the building. The one we're sat in now, actually, we've called the Iberson Courtyard because it, it benefits from this lovely arts and crafts uh, gable. And we hope that these, these little niches and pocket spaces around the building will become really... Um, useful kind of um, inviting places for students to meet one another and bump into each other but enough from the exteriors let's head inside where lunch service is well underway it's here that we meet phoebe hardingham jcr president of homerton college who reflects on what the new space encapsulates at this moment in time for the college and how the new design has been embraced by students so far I think this new hall has actually come at a really exciting time. We've got a new principal, we're kind of opening up after the pandemic, and we're reimagining how we use a lot of our spaces. Um, and Easter term specifically, it's a term when like, students don't have a lot of contact hours, you might just be revising every single day. So having a new space to kind of eat lunch and revise in the buttery is really kind of just fresh and new, and it kind of breaks up the kind of humdrum a bit. Talking to catering, this year we've seen kind of catering numbers going up and up. So actually students are engaging more and we're using these spaces more of an opportunity to come together rather than eating in our rooms or in like the kitchens that we have in our accommodation blocks. And it's really great to see it being so busy. I think you sometimes see people coming here for breakfast, so breakfast numbers are really increased. Um, I'm a member of Homerton World Swimming Society and every Saturday we race back from, the, from Grand Chester to make it back in time for breakfast, to cook breakfast, which is a really great different year groups, different people. I think it's a really great space of bringing people together, being able to sit and eat together and not think about work. You don't get people here sat at their laptops or anything like that, so that's really nice. The architect's concerns weren't only with the students. 
A great deal of thought has been put into the experience of chefs, porters and staff working tirelessly behind the scenes. On entering the new kitchen facilities, it was chef Bill Proudfoot who was eager to share the improvements made to his working environment. So, as you can see, new kitchen. It's certainly a large kitchen. A lot more working area, a lot more uh, equipment. So much more lighter. These natural light windows, so much more natural light. And I, I can feel as well it's not as hot. We've got air conditioning, so it's a much more nicer environment to work in. So as you can see, I've got four chefs working today. Plenty of space for them to work in, plenty of preparation tables to work in. Just an all-round better facilities for the chefs to work in. Dry goods stores is down there, uh, wine cellars down there. Just so much more easier and practical, and the flow system is so much better going out to the laundry, coming back again, it's just a logistical nightmare, but this is just so, so much more practical. That far corner is where we've got the plate wash and pot wash. One of my first jobs as a 13-year-old was um, washing dishes up in a in a restaurant um, in the village I, I grew up in, and um, I worked in kind of kitchen environments for, for six, seven years as I was sort of studying, and um, so it was quite familiar with um, how bad some of them can be and what kind of appalling environments um, chefs often have to work in you know in, in such hot conditions so yeah it was a real gift to be able to kind of <laughs> give give every space you know the chefs even the pot wash has a kind of window that looks out um, one of the nicest views actually at, uh, out towards the western gable of the building the project was was very much uh, about how to improve the environment for the staff as, as much as it was for the students and experiencing the, their previous kitchens which were very very dark compact um, that to kind of traverse over populated student corridors to get to their fridges and freezers and deliveries had to cross that that really kind of busy path so we really wanted to kind of improve that working environment for the staff and improve their well-being by creating a kitchen that was well designed spacious well ventilated and actually it has such openness that you kind of see all the way through the kitchen into the servery space where students pick up their food and all the way through into the hall. So um, there's a real sort of generosity to that, that gesture as well. It's this key word generosity that feels really apt to describe this dining hall, not only in its use of space and light, but also in its attitude towards not only the end users, students, but caters too for those working behind the scenes. For Monocle in Cambridge, I'm Maylie Evans. Finally on today's show, it's another anniversary of an esteemed design studio. Tom Dixon is celebrating 20 years, and to mark the occasion, the designer is hosting a special exhibition at the Brands Milan home next week to coincide with Salone del Mobile. On display will be a curated selection of lighting, furniture and accessories, products he's created while also running an interior design studio, retail spaces and a restaurant. To find out how all these elements work together and what part his dining and hospitality offering plays in the running of his wider business, I caught up with Dixon at the Cole office, his studio and restaurant space in King's Cross. 
The contents changes, but the, the method is very similar. I mean, I've always been interested in, in fact, I was interested in, first in, in making things before I was interested in design, you know, so the, the process of manufacturing and the interest in the raw material is very much there. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's as evident now as it was at the beginning. The materials have changed, you know, from scrap metal to, you know, to a whole variety of different, um, you know, glass, ceramics, plastics, uh, other metals. But, but the interest in how you make things is, is very much in evidence, I think, and, and as is the, the obsession with relatively simple uh, materiality and, and exposed connections and, and, you know, a kind of engineering view on the world, maybe. And there's also a sculptural element, which is still there, where I think I was, I was always more interested in, and, and I work more like a sculptor in, 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 in terms of uh, the process than I do as a, as a proper designer. Um, I never trained, and, and um, it's something that came to me through just making uh, things, you know, so. And then, you know, perhaps even an interest in commerce. I think, you know, many designers see the, com the commerce angle, the selling of the thing as for something which is not nothing to do with them, which is almost impure. But of course we do that here, we have to, and because we, we are the owners of all of this stock that we have to get rid of before we can make the next thing, you know. So, so you know, the interest in, in how you sell and, and what you sell in which way, also an interest in how you use it as well. So, you know, we have a restaurant, so we're also operators that need furnishings and stuff. So I think, you know, the, the, what's unusual about us sort of interest in, you know, from the departure point, the idea, all the way to the, the customer that we have direct contact with because we have a shop. I want to know a little bit more about how that sculptural element feeds into to what you do. Are you just making something that looks nice to start with and then coming back to the use? Or is it, I mean, more closely tied together than that? Well, no, I mean, I, I never did do sculpture. I mean, I was always more interested in sculpture. You know, the, the exhibitions I visited were sculpture exhibitions, not design exhibitions, you know, and, and I didn't know anything about design. So, but it's more the process. You know, I encountered design mainly through welding things. You know, I'd, I'd learned welding more as a means of repairing my vintage car and motorcycle that I had at the time and was immediately kind of mesmerized by the speed at which I could make things in metalwork, you know, which me being very sloppy and impatient, welding suited me because it had this ability to really fix things together really quickly and, and have a result that was, you know, really strong. And, and the welding quickly evolved into, into me making things for myself, for fun and for other people. And it was through practice that I became a designer, you know, and through making things for other people that had a function. But I think where I'd love to have been a sculptor, I think for me the, the blank page for the sculpture is much more difficult to overcome as a hurdle than having the excuse of a, you know, the function. So, you know, the function almost immediately drives the, you know, the, the, the departure point of an object and you can bring sculpture or shape making to the design process you have to but the frame of a, a specific function for me gives me that departure point which i didn't have in art really at all i mean i want to ask when i think of your work i'm, I'm thinking of playful shapes unexpected forms which again i think probably ties in with that sculpture thing are you thinking about how you want people to feel when they're you know looking at one of your lights or, or picking up one of your bowls or, or touching one of your your tables are you, are you 
thinking about the 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 emotions or, or the feelings you want, you want to give to that end user? I don't know if emotion is, is the right word. We have a, an interior design studio here as well, which again is kind of atypical, you know, for designers to produce their own work, you know, on the scale that we do. It's atypical for us to have a restaurant, but it's also atypical for a product company to have an interior design studio. Normally that's kept well separate. And well, there's quite a lot of interior designers that have product lines, we're the other way around, you know, we're a product line that has an interior design studio. But what that's done is to give us very much a, a kind of understanding of how things work in a space. And, you know, different objects have different kind of triggers, you know, where upholstery for me is really something about kind of tactility and sculpture. You know, a lamp, for instance, can have an impact on the whole of an environment and it has to also exist in two states, one which is at night when it's operating and one is during the day when it's a, a, a non-functioning object of sculpture. You know. So, I mean, I think each object has a different narrative departure point. Some, you know, I would like to, to get more motion, but I'd, I'd like to think more of the kind of intangible effects of interiors, you know, the, the smell and the sound and the and the shape and the, and the tactility of the things. In fact, we did a, a, a promotion recently called uh, Touchy, Feely, Noisy, Smelly, which was also about, you know, thinking about not just the object, but how they inhabit a space and how they affect a space. I think, you know, interior design has taught us that, you know, it's often those things that you don't immediately think of as, as a design that are important. So, you know, the smell of a place can put you right off the aesthetics you know, in a restaurant or in a hotel room. You know, the smell of the cleaning fluid, for instance, you know. Um, a noisy restaurant is an impossible to navigate space which can ruin your evening, right? And then a place which is overlit can be offensive as well. So even when you're trying to do your job of lighting something, you might make it too bright, you know. So those intangibles that are less also affects your emotions in response to your question, by the way. No, that was perfect. That was that was a really nice answer. I mean, you, you talked there about your interior studio and maybe this is a, a nice way to finish. I mean, I think a lot of people would be curious how you operate your business now. Can you tell us a little bit about that? With, with so many different threads, do you sort of, are you doing a day in the restaurant, a day in the shop, a day in the studio? How do you actually spend your time? Well, no, I mean, okay, so I'm a firm believer in chaos theory where you know just chuck up a lot of stuff and then see how they settle but there, there is a bit of a method to the madness so you know the interior design studio was actually created at the beginning of creating this this label this brand um, because it, it was instant revenue you know you, you, you're it's a service so you're being paid immediately whereas with products you have to wait for them to sell so you know so so the, the interior design studio was actually funded the product line so it was there at the very beginning clients you know or or just a bit of uh, free thinking. It's perfect. I mean, is, is there anything you feel you'd like to touch on? Is there anything else you want to add to, to this discussion? No, I, th I think, you know, because Monocle is a kind of business-interested magazine, I, I, I do think that what um, interests me as well is, you asked me about control. I mean, I'm really not a control freak. I'm actually a super good delegator because I don't like doing most of the things that we have to do here. But I'm interested, you know, I'm interested in the logistics because I've had to deliver stuff myself, you know. I'm interested in why people buy our stuff, you know, because 
It's really the reason why I ended up doing this is that the endorsement from the customer, you know, that the, the actual fact that somebody was prepared to buy my stuff, you know, my ideas was the thing that, that gave me the confidence to actually do it, you know. But I'm interested also in how you make things and, and how things are made specifically from the point of view of whether you can get things made at the right price for people to be able to afford them, you know. So, and, and I'm interested in, in all different levels. You know, I've tried to give away things for free, you know, using the Google model of, of selling advertising on the side kind of thing, you know, of your core business. You know, most of my business is about selling things that, that are actually relatively expensive and it could be seen as, as luxury and, and are dispensable, really, not, not needed in that way. So I mean, I'm, I'm interested in all of the different ways of, of doing commerce and, and that also feeds into the design, which I think is what makes it unusual. And the restaurant was always just, it started off really because we, we'd moved into a studio that had an industrial kitchen. It had been the canteen for Virgin Records. And we were going to chuck it all out. I thought, no, we can't do that. But that, you know, I, I could see already that, that it was difficult to run a furniture business, you know, the, the, from a retail perspective, and uh, you needed to find ways of getting people to come into a space and experience it in a more engaged way. You know, the furniture business depends on somebody coming in once every 20 years to buy a table. You know, so it's not never going to be a dynamic retail environment. And what the restaurant did was to was to get, you know, in this one here, probably 1,500 people coming through every week to spend two hours with you, which you'd never managed to do in a retail context. So although it seems quite random to have all of these different elements, I think in the end it's what's made us robust enough to withstand, you know, not just Brexit but COVID and now I hope we'll be able to survive World War III. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. Today's episode was produced by Charlie Fillmore Court and Maylee Evans. The show was edited by Jack Dewars. I'm Nick Manise. Thanks for listening. <laughs>